Our text for this morning is Psalm 25. I asked before we began to read this that you think about the main idea of the psalm. It's not so easy to determine, is it? How does one pick from all the different petitions in this psalm and say, this petition is the main petition of the psalm, or this is the main idea underlying all these petitions. You have the petition in verse, verses 1 and 2, let me not be ashamed. You have the petitions for forgiveness, which occur in several places in the psalm. And you have also that uh, request for teaching in verses 4 and 5. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me in your paths. Besides many other petitions, though I think those are the three main ones. Is there one of those petitions which we can say is the chief, the dominant petition here in this psalm? Is there one idea that ties all these different petitions together? In order to get to that, we have to understand the structure of the psalm, and that's why I gave you this morning that sheet, along with the bulletin. This psalm is not only an acrostic psalm, like Psalm 119, but it is also a chiasm, a chiasm. When we say a passage of scripture is a chiasm, what we mean is that the second half of the psalm is a mirror image of the first. Or to put it in a little different way, in the first half of this psalm, David deals with a series of subjects, that's in verses 1 to 10, and then in the second half of the psalm, verses 12 to 22, he deals with the same subjects again, but in reverse order, so that you have a kind of pyramidal structure to the psalm. Let's see if we can grasp that by looking at the divisions of the psalm now. First of all, you have in verses 1 to 3 a request that centers primarily on not being ashamed. Let me not be ashamed, David says in verse 2. But if you go down now to verses 19 to 22, notice that in verse 20 he repeats that request. Let me not be ashamed, for I put my trust in you. So verses 1 to 3 and 19 to 22 are parallel, are similar in content and structure, and are to be placed together in our thinking. Then if you go down to verses 4 to 7, notice that David in these verses makes a very personal petition. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. And he concludes that petition in verses 6 and 7 with a request for forgiveness. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. If you then turn to verses 15 to 18, you see that again you have a series of personal petitions which conclude with a request for forgiveness. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. 
So you have that second request for forgiveness. That means then that verses 4 to 7 and verses 15 to 18 are parallel and belong together again in our thinking about this psalm. Now if you look at verses 8 to 10, the third major section in the psalm, David does not pray here. Verses 1 to 7 are all in petition, and so are verses 15 to 18. It's all petition except for verse 15, but we'll talk about that later. Verses 1 to 7 and verses 15 to 22 are all petition. But when he gets to verse 8, suddenly he's no longer praying. He is talking about the Lord, not to him, and encouraging himself to believe that the Lord will answer his petition. He has made the petition, teach me, O Lord, your ways. Now he says, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he teaches sinners in the way. And then verses 12 to 14, you also have this objective talk about the Lord where David is encouraging himself. Who is the man that fears the Lord? Him shall he teach in the way he chooses. So in those two sections, which are also parallel, David is talking about the Lord rather than making petition to him. And then in verse 11, smack dab in the middle of the psalm, you have another request for pardon. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. That petition really stands out, doesn't it, when you think about the fact that David is not praying in the verses immediately preceding or in the verses immediately after. So right in that middle of the middle of that section where he talks about the Lord and how good the Lord is, he repeats his request for pardon. So you have three main petitions. Let me not be ashamed. Teach me your ways. Pardon my iniquity. Arranged, as we've seen, chiastically. But when you understand that structure, then you also understand, don't you, the essential idea of the psalm. What stands at the very heart of the psalm is that petition. Verse 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. This is a psalm about pardon of sin. And the whole psalm, then, revolves around the idea of repentance. In fact, we may consider the psalm, I think, under the theme, the way of repentance. The way of repentance is what David is talking about here. First of all, we consider in connection with that way of repentance, praying for pardon of iniquity. Secondly, we consider in connection with that idea of the way of repentance, praying for instruction in the way. Praying for instruction in the way. And finally, we consider in connection with that idea of the way of repentance, praying for relief from chastisement, that is, let me not be ashamed. We're going to have time this morning only to talk about the, pray, the prayer for pardon. 
We'll leave the other two points of the sermon for next week, God willing. The prayer for pardon of iniquity is what we're going to talk about this morning. And I want to go into some detail about that. That prayer occurs three times in the psalm. In verses 6 and 7, Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Then again in verse 11, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. And finally in verse 18, Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sin. The first thing we must do, people of God, when we repent of our sins is go to our God and ask him to pardon them. That's the very first step on the way of repentance. When we recognize sin in ourselves, the proper response to recognizing that sin in ourselves is the acknowledgement of that sin to our God and the request to him that he pardon our iniquities. Now, if you look at those three requests that David makes here in this psalm for pardon, you will notice that he does not ask for pardon of a specific transgression. There's no mention of any particular sin here. And we do not have any knowledge either of the occasion on which this psalm was written. We cannot therefore place it historically in the life of David and say about it, as we can, for example, about Psalm 3. This psalm was written about these circumstances, therefore we can identify this as the sin which David had in mind. In fact, when you go back to verses 6 and 7 and verse 18, you will see that David talks about sins in the plural. Do not remember the sins of my youth. And again in verse 18, forgive all my sins. So David does not even have in mind here in this psalm a specific transgression, I think. He is talking about sins in general. He is reviewing, as it were, the history of his life and finding in that history far too many sins. He is in the state of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 where he says, the good that I will to do, I do not do, and the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. He is oppressed by this knowledge of his sinfulness, the knowledge that his sins are prevailing from day to day, the knowledge that his sins go on and on and on throughout his life. He looks all the way back to the time of his youth, in fact, and he says, even about that time, remember not the sins of my youth. Now let's look at each of the specific requests that David makes here. And we're going to begin with verse 11, which starts, which is at the heart of the psalm. 
For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. There are, people of God, no venial sins in the sight of God. We may never look at a particular sin that we have committed and shrug it off as unimportant, as insignificant, as if that sin does not matter. There are many of our sins that we think about in that way. We think to ourselves, well, that wasn't really so bad. That wasn't really such a great transgression. And therefore, I can kind of pass over it. There are no venial sins in the sight of God. There are venial sins, or at least we hope there are venial sins in our own sight. We tend always to minimize our transgressions. But God does not minimize transgressions. To God, all our transgressions are great because they are offenses against His majesty and against His goodness. That eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden may be discounted as relatively unimportant. All they did, after all, was take a bite out of a piece of fruit that they found there in the garden. But that's not a venial sin. There are no such things as venial sins in the sight of God. God requires obedience of us, and He requires a full and perfect and wholehearted obedience. And all of our sins, therefore, are great in His eyes. We must learn to think of our sins not as we like to think of them, but as God thinks of them. It's important, people of God, that we get hold of that truth, that it doesn't really matter how we in our own minds think of our sins or how we wish to think of them. What matters is how God thinks of them. And we must teach ourselves to think of them as He thinks of them. Pardon my iniquity, for it is great. But that idea of greatness pertains also, I think, to the history of sin that we talked about a moment ago. It's not just that David sees that he has committed a specific sin now at this time and needs pardon for that sin, but as he reviews his life, he sees that he is not one who can be called an occasional sinner, an infrequent sinner. He must acknowledge that he is a habitual sinner. And that's why he says, pardon my iniquity, for it is great, and remember not the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. So instead of shrugging off our sins or seeking to minimize them in our own minds or perhaps even to our friends, we ask God for pardon. Alexander McLaren, in his Expositions of Holy Scripture, points out that the pardon that belongs to our human experience is of two kinds. There is the pardon that comes to a criminal from the governor, for example. We talked about that last week. The pardon which is a waiving of deserved punishment. This governor simply remits punishment, waives 
the sentence of the law so that justice is not executed against the sinner. That's one kind of pardon in our experience. But the other kind of pardon is the pardon of a father to his disobedient child. And that pardon is different. And it's different because the point of that pardon is the restoration of the relationship of love, the restoration of the enjoyment of fellowship and peace between the father and his child. The pardon that the governor grants has nothing to do with law, uh, with love. It has nothing at all to do with love. Love doesn't enter into it. Love doesn't matter there. But the love of a father for his child is what's important in the child's consciousness when his father pardons him and is important also to the father. There is a desire to restore that relationship of love. Now God's pardon partakes of both aspects of human pardon. God waives the punishment of our sin. He does not punish our sins as they deserve. He does not bring on us the full weight of his anger against us for our sins. God's pardon, therefore, remits the proper, appropriate punishment of the law and, of course, places it, in this case, on another. But God's pardon also is meant to restore the relationship of love between himself and his children. God, by his pardon, brings us back into his presence to let the light of his countenance shine on us. God desires our fellowship in his love for us and restores that fellowship by his pardon. We desire that fellowship and so go to him seeking that pardon from him. Now we should note at the same time that God waives the punishment, the appropriate punishment of our sins, that he nevertheless does show his anger. He does still frequently chastise us as a father chastises his disobedient child. But that chastisement is not the payment of the debt. That chastisement is the correction necessary to restore the relationship of love. That idea of chastisement is going to be important in our later consideration of this psalm. Now the third thing that we have to notice about that verse 11 is that David says there, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. When we come to God asking for pardon, we do not ask for that pardon on the basis of anything in ourselves. We do not, for example, come to him to remind him that we are overall obedient children, that our lapses from obedience are what relatively infrequent, that we are only occasionally thus sinful, and ask him then to pardon us because it's, after all, just an infrequent thing and he can afford to do it for us. We do not come to him to plead mitigating circumstances. 
There are mitigating circumstances to our sins, and God himself in his justice recognizes those mitigating circumstances. He says, for example, that it will be worse for the Sodom and, uh, for Chorazin and Bethsaida in the day of judgment than for Sodom and Gomorrah. He takes mitigating circumstances into account, but we do not plead for pardon on the basis of mitigating circumstances. We do not say to God, our iniquities are not as great as they seem because of this or this or that. Please pardon because those mitigating circumstances really kind of excuse our transgressions. We do not come to him to excuse ourselves to him. We come to him to ask him for his pardon. He will take the mitigating circumstances into account. Surely he will. But we do not come to him to pray for pardon on the basis of such circumstances. We do not come to him with the request that he pardon our transgressions because our punishment has already been sufficient. That was Cain after he had murdered Abel. Your punishment, he said to God, is more than I can bear. We do not come that way. We come with the acknowledgement that we deserve all the punishment that God can give us. We do not come either, people of God, to plead the measures we have taken to do penance for our sins. You probably think immediately of the Roman Catholic Church, and that's fine. The Roman Catholic Church has this whole sacrament of penance, which is meant, of course, to obtain or to help in the obtaining of pardon. But that inclination to do penance for our sins dwells in all of us. We think that if we can punish ourselves enough, that then we can somehow, by ourselves, make things right with God. So we deny ourselves certain things, or we are extra enthusiastic about doing good after we have committed a particularly bad transgression. And we think, well, we have now paid, at least in part, for what we have done, we can obtain the favor of God again. This comes to its most extreme expression, of course, in the flagellation that was done in the Middle Ages, where people went around beating themselves with whips, shedding their own blood in the hope of making some sort of atonement for their sins. We do not come to God in that way. We do not come as self-flagellants before him saying, I will punish myself. I will do all these things if only you will pardon my sins. We do not come, people of God, pleading any effort on our own part. We come in full reliance on the Lord himself. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Moses also pleaded, with God to pardon the sin of his people Israel on the basis of his name. Exodus 32, verses 11 and 12, Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face 
of the earth. Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. He reminds God that he has a reputation to maintain in the sight of the Egyptians. In the sight of the Egyptians, no less. And says, why should the Egyptians accuse you of bringing them out simply to destroy them? Remember your name, remember your reputation, and uphold your reputation among them. So we pray, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity. Let it all be based in your character, in your works, in your mind, not in my thoughts or in my works. The second request for pardon is found in verses 6 and 7. Notice in those two verses that threefold remember. Remember, O Lord, your tender mercies. Do not remember the sins of my youth. And then again, according to your mercy, remember me. Remember your tender mercies first. David is, as we've said, oppressed and afflicted in this psalm by the knowledge of his sins and by the chastising hand of God upon him for those sins. God has, according to David's experience anyway, forgotten his tender mercies and his loving kindnesses. As David looks back over the history of Israel and after, uh, over his own history prior to this psalm, he sees many evidences of God's tender mercies and loving kindnesses in that history. He sees how often God has forgiven and has shown to his people his mercy and his loving kindness. But it seems to him now at this time that God has forgotten God's mercies and loving kindnesses are not known. Remember, he says, your tender mercies and your loving kindnesses, for they have been ever of old. You have done it many, many times in the past, both for me and for all your people. Let me see those tender mercies and those loving kindnesses now also today. Secondly, remember not the sins of my youth. We've already talked about that a little bit, people of God, but we need to talk about it a little bit more. First of all, of course, there is the idea there that David is going back over his history and remembering that he is a habitual sinner, that he has sinned many, many times over the course of his history against the Lord, and that these sins began in the days already of his youth. But there's more to it than that. When we are young, people of God, we are headstrong. We are proud. We are impulsive. We are foolish. And because of these things, we rush in impetuously sometimes. And in our rush, in our refusal to listen to wise counsel, in our pride, in our ignorance, we sometimes commit very great transgressions in our youth. I suspect, people of God, that all of us have things from our youth that we would rather not remember. Things of which we are still ashamed today. 
because we foolishly rushed in where we ought not to have done. And the saddest thing about those sins of youth, people of God, is that they often have very long shadows, lifelong consequences, and carry with them many bitter regrets. David says here, remember not the sins of my youth. Now he does not mean, of course, wipe them all together from your mind. God cannot forget in that way. He's omniscient. He knows all things and cannot deny any of that knowledge which he has. What David means is, do not remember them against me. Do not any longer be angry with me. And because he's praying in that way, of course, what he means really here is not only God, do not any longer be angry with me, but bring your peace to my troubled conscience for these sins. Do not remember them in such a way as to bring them continually to my mind. Take away from me all those bitter regrets which I have for those horrible things I did when I was young. Undo, even if it is possible, the consequences for those sins. We may have to wait for the full answer to that prayer for glory. But still, we ask, undo even the bitter consequences of our transgressions. And finally, remember me. According to your mercy, he says in verse 18, in verse 7, according to your mercy, remember me for your goodness' sake, O Lord. Remember your tender mercies. Do not remember the sins of my youth. Remember me according to your mercies. The Lord is good. That's the fundamental plea here. The Lord is good for your goodness sake, O Lord. The Lord is a beneficent God. He delights in giving good things to his children. He says of himself in Ezekiel chapter 18 that he does not delight in the death of the wicked. That's a fundamental truth of his character. He must show his anger to the wicked. He must destroy them in his wrath. His wrath demands that. His justice demands that. But he does not delight in it. He delights, people of God, in goodness. He is beneficent by nature, by character. And David here in this psalm casts himself on the goodness, the beneficence of the Lord. According to your mercy, remember me, for your goodness sake, O Lord. That's the first request then. Let's go back now to verses 6 and 7. Excuse me, let's go on now to verse 18. We just covered verses 6 and 7. Verse 18, look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. That expression, forgive all my sins, is a very interesting expression. The word that David uses there in verse 18, forgive all my sins, is the very same word that he uses in verse 1 when he says, to you, O Lord, I lift up 
my soul. Very striking, isn't it? To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Now here, really, in verse 18, bear or lift up all my sins. What's the importance of that? What's the significance of that? Well, people of God, there are a number of passages that I want to look at here. If you turn with me to those passages, you can see, I think, what that idea is. The first and most important of these passages is found in Isaiah 53, verse 12, where the prophet is describing the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says, He poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. Same word and made intercession for the transgressors. He bore the sin of many. So here in this psalm, David says, Bear my sins. But there are some other passages in the book of Exodus that we need to look at, and those are also important. The first one is found in Exodus chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Exodus 10, verses 16 and 17, Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. Pharaoh says there in verse 17, Now, therefore, please bear my sin only this once. And the idea is clearly an idea of substitution. Pharaoh is not going to bear his own sin into the presence of God. He is saying to Moses, you take my sin, you bear it, it, and you carry it for me into the presence of God. You bear my transgression. So there's the same idea again of substitution, of another bearing the iniquity. Again, in Exodus 32, verse 32, here Moses is pleading for the people of Israel after they have committed the sin with the golden calf, and he says, Yet now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. Let now, if you will for yet now, if you will, bear their sin. And notice the contrast, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. In other words, Moses is here coming into the presence of God with this terrible sin which Israel has just committed at Mount Sinai and worshiping the golden calf and committing all kinds of fornication besides. And he's saying... Here are two alternatives to punishing your people. First, you bear their sin. But if you won't, then let me bear it. Yet now, if you will, bear their sin. And if not, I pray, blot me out of your book which you have written. And then again in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord appears to Moses and shows Moses his glory and declares before him, 
The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And again, the word is bearing. Keeping mercy for thousands, bearing iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the answer to Moses' plea in Exodus 32. Moses said, if you will, bear their iniquity. And here God reveals to him his glory and says, He is the Lord, the Lord God, who bears iniquity and transgression and sin. The idea of substitution is there, people of God, in that word that the psalmist uses here in verse 18. Look on my affliction and my pain and bear all my sins. It speaks prophetically, though not very clearly here in this psalm, it speaks prophetically of that one who will bear all the sins of his people. And again, that prayer for pardon is grounded in the character of God. Look on my affliction and my pain and bear all my sins. David does not mean here, look on my affliction and pain or my affliction and toil and see how much I have suffered already. I've suffered really enough. Father, let your suffering That's not the idea. He's appealing to the compassion of God. Look on my affliction and pain. See how I suffer and take pity on me. Not because I deserve pity. He knows he doesn't deserve it. But because he knows that it is the character of God. It belongs to the character of God. To be pitiful. To be compassionate. To be merciful. Look on my affliction and my pain. Enlighten my burden of guilt, of regret, of sorrow for the consequences of my sins. Bear it all away in your great compassion. So, people of God, the way of repentance begins with asking for pardon. Asking for pardon is the first step on that way. We cannot proceed further on that way until we have asked for pardon. You cannot add to your request, as David does here in Psalm 25, teach me your way, or let me not be ashamed, until you have first prayed for pardon. But in asking for pardon, people of God, we come to a God who is good, who is beneficent, who is compassionate and who is faithful, faithful to his name, faithful to his glory, faithful to his promises. He is the God who says of himself, I am the Lord, the Lord God. I bear iniquity and transgression and sin. Having heard the word of God, let us say amen. Amen. Let us respond now to the word of God.
with the confession of our faith, the confession of the Church of All Ages, the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord.